My name is Kyle Gatlin. I'm also one of the pastors uh, at Covenant, and I have a question that, uh, just simple question to ask you and to think about a little bit. What do people think about God? What do people think about God? Now, people will tell you, if, you're, if you ask them, they will actually tell you, and actually the, the way they answer it in the U.S. is a whole lot different than they answer it anywhere else. <clears throat> there are places that if you ask that question, uh, they will refer to some object. There will some that say, in, in the places in our world, that will say there is no God, and a whole lot in between. And there are actually places in the United States, even though 80 to 90 percent of the U.S. citizens believe in a God, what they believe in about God really differs. And if you really talk to people that don't go to church at all, it's going to have a real different tone about it. But there are sort of four popular uh, descriptions about God that are out there. And three of these four, you, you would probably, as a church person, go, I don't know about that. One you would like. But they are, they are out there. They are out there. And what is interesting when I was reading this and, and, and discovering what people thought about God in a general sense, that actually every description I'm getting ready to give you Four of them is actually found in the Old Testament. Every one of them. For instance, the, the first one is authoritative. That God is an authoritative God, which means basically he is enga God's engaged in, in, the, in human affairs, but punishes. But he is a God who punishes. And we find this in Psalm. The Lord has punished me severely, but he did not let me die. There's the uh, description that people call God as a benevolent God. This is the one we like. This was the one we go, yes, this is, the, this is my God. This is the God who rescues and provides alternatives in crisis. And we also find this in 2 Samuel. He sent me from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those he hated, who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. We go, yes. I like that one, but then we have also the critical God. This is a God who doesn't concern himself in our lives at all, but will judge us in the afterlife. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. And then there's the distant God. This is usually voiced by people who are very highly educated, who have a very scientific uh, view of the world, but you also see this in Psalm. They say the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob takes no notice, or why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And you, and you think about, okay, authoritative God, a critical God, a distant God, that's, that's not how I see God, and I beg to differ. Because I believe it's just human nature that when we are going through life, that we're going to think about these more than once. Because things are going to happen, we're going to go through circumstances, and we're going to wear our feelings on our sleeves. We're, we're going to have our feelings out there, and it's going to come out about how we actually feel about God, at least in that moment. We may lash out, and we may say something that and later we go, oh, I shouldn't have said that, or I really don't believe that, I was just upset, I was frustrated, I was angry, it doesn't matter. 
But at times we'll go through this, and that's okay. Because the psalmist did it. The writers of the Old Testament did it. They went through bouts of this too, where they were experiencing God one way. Does that mean that was the way that they experienced God all the time? No. Does that the way we experience God all the time? No, that's not the way. But we do have our preconceived notions, and these are, these, these are just four examples. Because I, be, I guarantee you there's a bunch of us, maybe not all of us in this room, but a bunch of people that you know that have this concept about God that he's somewhere like a, between a butler and Santa Claus, right? That, that's how we sort of think about it. Because that's the way we want to think about it. That, that he's going to be there to help me. He's going to be there to gift me. He's going to be there all the time to help me out, right? So, but understand that those references in the Old Testament are really just part of the story. That's just part of the story. Because we can't just gauge how we feel about God. That's, that should not be the barometer, right? How we feel in a certain moment should not be the barometer about who God is and, and, and what we believe and think about God. And what we find when we shift to the New Testament, there is a different take. There is a different idea about God. The very nature of God shifts somewhat, and we all know that's because of Jesus. You know, there's many people in this room that, are, that have their names because of a family member. My, my son is named after a family member, his dad, right? Uh, my mom and dad chose not to give any of our kids, my sister or my brother or I, names that were any relation to family at all. In fact, the best I can tell from the story that I remember when I asked mom when she could remember was that... Um, that the names that we all got, uh, Derek Cameron, Shane Carolyn, and Kyle Sterling, were basically names that she had heard from patients in the hospital. That's, that's the story I've gotten. Right? So she, you know, she works at night, so she doesn't talk to a lot of patients because they're asleep, or at least she tried to let them sleep, unlike some nurses, but it, that's another story. Right? So she would see the names on the charts and talk to them, and she, these were end up being basically six different names that she sort of had liked. Couldn't tell you who the patient, anything about the patient. She just liked the names. That's, that's what I remember. But when we look at God's story in the Bible, names, been a big, names were a big deal. People had names that meant something. And, and many of the people that, that you read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, their, their names were changed to reflect who they were. Some of them were given names, and they lived into that names, all right? So God's story continues in the New Testament, we know, with the birth of Jesus. And the names that we look at in the rest of our time together, in, up through Easter, up through Christmas, are names that we find in the birth story. And these names really reflect God's nature, they reflect who God is. Because when we see Jesus, when we experience Jesus, that is God in the flesh. So our first 
first word, you already know the word is Emmanuel, it comes from Matthew 1. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph was her husband, was faithful to the law, yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place, and when Matthew says this, this is Matthew's commentary now, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew is the one that comes in at the, at, in the right in the middle of telling us the story about Joseph and the angel. He comes in and brings in the Old Testament. He brings in the prophecy found in Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 7, 14 and injects his own interpretation. What was Isaiah 7, 14? Isaiah 7, 14 says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you and will call him Emmanuel. And Matthew and then includes his portion. That means God with us. So Matthew makes sure everybody knows what Emmanuel means. You know what the context of Isaiah seven fourteen was? That was when that, that prophecy was coming out. When that when the words were spoken and, and put forth to the people, this was, this was supposed to be an encouragement. To, to the Israelites that, hey, listen, in, there's, a, there's a conflict, there, there's basically a battle, a war, and, and you don't have to fight this on your own. You're going to have God with you. God's going to be with you in this coming th- military threat. That was what the whole deal was supposed to be about, okay? But, the, but Isaiah, after, after 7.14, actually continues and talks about more about this uh, help for this military threat that's coming and mentions that there will be an heir of David. Now, what did Matthew say? Matthew said, Joseph, son of David. There's going to be an heir of David who is to come and will restore hope to the nation of Israel. And so verse 14, Isaiah 7, 14, is really just the first of many verses that talk about this coming hope. Now, in the more traditional denominations, Advent is a word used regularly. And y'all know that. Many of you know that. We use the word Advent. We don't use it a whole lot, but you'll see it a good bit. And, and when we talk about Advent, we normally associate the words wait and hope they're predominant when anybody's talking about Advent. Wait and hope. When you look back and at the Hebrew and Latin, and you find the root word for hate, for wait, also part of that root word is, is, is the, the word hope. So they're, they're actually both the same thing in Hebrew and Latin. So as, as Isaiah was telling Israel, that wait to wait for the coming heir of David, he was also saying, in that is hope. 
in that waiting inherently, just by definition, is hope. So one of the reasons that we have hope is actually contained in the word Emmanuel. God is with us. God is with us. Now, when you, when you think about all the different ideas about God, whatever, what people around the world think about God, this one is unique. I hope you realize this. This is a unique part of Christianity, that God is with us. No other religion has this. Christianity is only one. All the other religions have the God apart, above, distinctly different. Right? Only ours, only Christianity has God being with us. God came to us. God lived with us. God is with us. He is one of us. Nobody else makes that claim. And when you think about all the, all the other type of gods that people believe in, and they, they worship them, but they're also, they also know that they're separate from them. And there's some, there's some pretty good implications from that, right? Because if you believe a God is separate from you and distinct from you, it changes the way you live your life. You, 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 you pay homage to a God, right? You, and you may uh, acknowledge there's a God, and you may do sacrifices and things like that. But you, when you're thinking about a God distinctly different and apart from you, you basically come to the conclusion that I'm on my own. And the things that I'm doing is, is sort of my choice. And, and I can sort of do what I want. I pay homage to him and hope things work out all right. I make sacrifices to, to him and, and, and hope it's better, but it's really a lot more on me. What about Emmanuel? What are the implications of Emmanuel? Well, to start with, we are never truly alone. Well, let me rephrase that. To start with and end with. We are never truly alone. During the first year of COVID, anybody remember COVID? All right. During the first year of COVID, emergency rooms were overcrowded. In Parkland Hospital uh, in Dallas, during that, during that year, that hospital identified 80 patients, 80 patients, listen to this figure, 80 patients who went to four emergency rooms 5,139 times in the span of 12 months. 80 patients, four different hospitals, they rotated 5,139 times. Well, they did a follow-up after that year of those 80 patients that went so many times to the emergency room. And when they followed up and, was, and, and were talking to these 80 people, they determined that the number one determinant for them going to the ER was loneliness, isolation. 
That's why they went there. What do you get in the ER? You get attention. You get kindness and care. Eventually. Right. One, uh, one of my grandsons, the oldest grandson, I had, uh, there was a, y- y'all remember my wife went to Kentucky a lot with her mother, so there was, um, there was one, one Saturday, <clears throat> I had the boys by myself uh, while my uh, son and, and, and daughter and along went to uh, an Auburn football game. <clears throat> I think it was a 50-50 chance they won that game. But anyway, so, the, so I had them, and what do you, what do, you do with two, two boys that are rambunctious? Well, you get them out of the house at some point. So I brought them up here. I brought them up here to the playground. And, of course, there's two playgrounds. Of course, I took them. They're small, you know, three and getting ready to be two in a, couple, in a month or so. I took them to the small playground and killed some time there. But eventually, my oldest said, I'm going to go over there. He wanted to go to the bigger playground. Okay? That in itself is scary enough because... That means granddad's got to climb up to the top of the slide and stuff like that. I don't want particularly the, the tube one, right? But at one point, my oldest got on a climbing apparatus. There's a couple things you can climb out there. Well, he started climbing and got about halfway up and determined that, uh-oh, something's got to give. I'm either got to go up, I got to go down, or I'm going to fall. That's, that's why you sort of got there. And, but what did he do? Granddad, granddad, he hollered for me because he knew I was with him. He knew that I was right there and he knew that I would help him. God will do the same for us. We are never alone. We're never without help. And we're never without hope. I want you to know something else that Matthew included in his account of Jesus. You see, he begins the story of Jesus' life by reminding us that he is Emmanuel, God with us. And one of the last things that Matthew records is Matthew 28. And surely, Jesus told his disciples, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you. Jesus makes that promise. Jesus says, I'm living into the name that I was giving at birth. I am with you. And when he says always, in every translation, always is always, always. And in every translation, end is always end. Jesus is always with us to the very end. I want to remind you of this. I want you to realize now that you are stronger than you think because God is nearer than you know. You are stronger than you think because God is nearer than you know. God could have given us any type of representative of his his character. But he gave us Jesus, who was with us, who loved us and cared for us. But the early church, and particularly Paul, figured out, hey, there's more to Jesus. There's more to God than just being with us. Because Paul figured out this. 
God is for us. God is for us. You know, I can be with someone, but be a drag on them, right? I can be with someone, and I can, I can be a frustration to them. I can be a discouragement to them. I can be negative. I can belittle their efforts. I can make fun of them. In other words, I'm a talk show host, right? So that's what I can be if I'm just simply with someone. I can be that. I have been with Deandra, my, my wife, since 1988. I have been living with her since 1991. After we got married, December 21st, 1991, I've been living with her. But I know this about my wife, that she has not just been with me. She has been for me. When nobody else was encouraging me, she was. When I was down, she was there to pick me up. She is my biggest cheerleader. She is my biggest fan. She has been for me. She hasn't just been with me. She has been for me. And Paul says that this, this nature of God is just different. Because he is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus' first miracle was at Cana. Turn water into wine. Remember at the wedding? That, that seems sort of petty, doesn't it? Unless you're the host. But Jesus was for the host. John also records the woman at the well. The woman at the well was there at the middle of the day because nobody wanted to be around her. Nobody wanted to be with her because she was living with a dude that was not her husband. Jesus shows up because he is for her. He's not just with her. He is for her. Max Lucado puts it this way. I love what Max says. I'm just going to read it straight to you because he said, God is for you. Turn to the sidelines. That's God's cheering your run. Look past the finish line. That's God applauding your steps. Listen for him in the bleachers shouting your name. Too tired to continue. He'll carry you. Too discouraged to fight. He's picking you up. God is for you. Had he a calendar, your birthday would be circled. If he drove a car, your name would be on his bumper. If there's a tree in heaven, he's carved your name in the bark. And I know y'all won't like this part. You know what? God even has a tattoo. See, I've written your name on the palms of my hands. Hey, do y'all remember this picture? Back from 1992. Y'all remember this picture? This is Derek Redmond. Derek Redmond had qualified for the 88 Olympics, but had tore his Achilles an hour before the race. So he worked for the next four years, qualified for the Barcelona Olympics in 92 in the 400-meter sprint. He was first in the, the, the first qualifying run. He was number one on his heat. And then he, he uh, had the fastest time, actually, the fastest time in the first heat of uh, the qualifying. In the next round, he won his heat. And so he gets to the quarterfinals, I mean the semifinals, started out strong, but at 150 meters into the race, he tore his hamstring. And so he stood in his lane, hopping on his one good leg, 
making sure he stayed in his lane, didn't get out of his lane. As he tried to finish the race, the crowd stood and cheered him. And then, uh, uh, ignoring the track officials, his father, that's his father, came up to him, put his arms around his waist, and you see Derek with his, with his head on his shoulder, crying as they both finished the race, long after everybody else had been done. Here's another picture. This is Kayla Montgomery. Kayla Montgomery, and that's her coach, Patrick Cromwell. By the time Kayla Montgomery was a senior in high school in North Carolina, she, had the, she was the fastest long-distance runner in her state, and actually at the time, 21st in the whole nation. Why is that a big deal? Age of 15, she was diagnosed with MS. She had to quit soccer when she was diagnosed with that, but she was determined to keep running as long as her body would let her run. One of the many symptoms of MS is uh, something happens to your body, and at least particularly in her body, when the body gets overheated, things happen. And in her case, when she became overheated, she lost feelings from her waist down. She had no feeling in her legs. But she kept running. She kept running. And as she was running the track, every time around, Coach Cromwell would be encouraging her. He would, he would be telling her where, where, where to go, where to move, and all this other. She could not feel how fast she was going because she had no feelings in her legs. See, stepping was not an issue. Running was not an issue because she kept that momentum going. And her coach had to tell her, now is the time to move. Now is the time. Get on that first person. Stay with them for one more lap. He was there encouraging her every lap of the way. 3,200-meter race on track and, track and field. And he was encouraging her every lap around. And she kept going. She kept going. But the one thing she could not control was stopping. And for four years, Patrick Cromwell did that, was at the end to catch her. Cross country, track and field, for four years, Coach Cromwell was there. He was for her, and he was with her. God is to us, as the coach is to Kayla, and Derek's father was to him. No matter how well you run your race, you're not going to run forever. You're going to need help. And God will be there during your race and at the end. God is for us and with us. God is for me and with me. What more do you want? What more do you need? Not the most happiest of thoughts, but each of us are closer to our finish line than we were yesterday. Do you want to finish on your own? Or do you want someone that will catch you? Let's pray. God, you made a promise to us that because of Jesus and through Jesus, you are for us and you are with us. But you don't push yourself on us. We must invite you in. We must acknowledge you as Lord and Savior. So in these next few moments, may each person here call on you as their Lord and call you.
to hold them up. In Jesus' name.